Hi everyone, this is episode five and today we have our first guest on the podcast. It is Mike Adams, OBE from Purple. Hi Mike. Hi there Mike. Good morning. So first up, a quick warning on the potential for noises off during this podcast, as I'm sure all of you listening um, are in the same situation. We, we are in uh, various different places this morning. So as well as the three of us from our temporary offices, we have children, cats, rats, and who knows what else ready to make guest appearances. Um, but notwithstanding that early excuse, the most important question, I guess, is now more than ever, is is how are you both doing in these fairly surreal times? So, so Mike, how, how are things for you? Uh, surreal, Andrew. You are absolutely right. Um, unprecedented, the word that is uh, in the lexicon as the new word. Um, it's strange. Uh, I'm <laughs> sitting in the office at the moment. Uh, we have half the team in. Uh, so we do two things. We support businesses to support disabled members of staff and customers. And we also support disabled people to live independently in the community, employ carers and agencies. And it's absolutely vital that we see, we are seeing 6,000 carers going into the homes of disabled people to get them up, get them dressed. Um, and give them a level of independence. And, and at this time, it's absolutely critical that we can pay these individuals every week and provide the support and employment advice and guidance needed. And, you know, we have the challenge of turning what is an office-based operation remotely. And we have agreed as a team that we need to do it collectively and we need to do it safely. So we are working 18 hours a day to try and turn the whole organisation remote in a safe way because I think this is going to be a number of weeks. Um, and at home I have four children. I have uh, a 12-year-old, a 7-year-old and two 10-month-old twins. Um, and a mother-in-law that's living with us as well at the moment. So it's a very crowded house, a noisy house, and part of me wants to delay the transition to remote working for as long as possible, but I know that's not responsible either. So uh, it's absolutely uh, intense in many ways at a time when the world has gone so quiet. Mm. And how about you, Catherine? Well, I was just saying to Mike before, and it's been a bit strange for us. I mean, we've been able to adapt really quickly as business um, to working from home because we kind of have that set up in any case for, for people anyway, just in case they don't feel well enough to come into the office. So everybody's kind of already got those encrypted laptops and things to work from home. But what's been really strange for us is that obviously we live in Filey, uh, which is in the middle of nowhere, a little, little town on the coast. And um, coronavirus is here. Um, we have somebody local who is very very seriously in hospital right now um alan's sister um they believe has it uh, she has some she's had the test done and there's some higher sorry the high level readings of this certain kind of um i don't know what you call it flag within the readings to say it's just it's coronavirus and um she has really really bad asthma and has been significantly ill but it's luckily touch wood she is getting better she hasn't had to go into hospital um, she's been getting better but it's been very unusual because of the fact that two days before she was tested myself and Alan saw her we did the usual things it was before all the social distancing and everything we hooked her we were kissing on the face and everything like that 
So it's very likely that we've had it as well. And I've just had my, um, this is about two weeks ago now. So if we have had it, touch wood, we are through what should be the thing. But I've had headaches, sore throats, you know, just generally not feeling great, but not bad at all, which is really, really fortunate. But my five-year-old has just woken up and said that he can't, taste anything properly and that he's got a sore throat so now I'm just I've said to my, Alan just before I came upstairs before I left him with three of them I was like you watch him like a hawk you know you absolutely watch him um and so just a little bit worrying um I think anything and everything and you kind of then start to think am I thinking too much of this though because it's it's a sore throat and it's a headache you know I mean that's that could be anything that could be stuck in the house for two weeks you know with um, central heating and everything and I think we're just all so unsure of what's happening and I think, you know, obviously everybody's scared and we don't know what's going on. And um, it kind of feels as well as if there's nowhere for correct information. I, I don't feel like if I look on social media, I never look on social media for, for true information of anything, in all fairness, because you just get so many different things out there. But, you know, there's just so much going around now and so many opinions. And the news just seems to be conflicting all the time as well. And it's really, really hard. So I know I, I sometimes just see there's some doctors on Twitter that I see and I've seen them for a long time. They've always made sense. So I'm kind of, I'm watching what they're doing and I'm watching what they're saying. So I think, right, they're an official doctor. So hopefully, you know, they have all the, the, the true stuff there in front of them. But um, definitely strange times adapting from working from home. Um, I'm shattered and I think every parent in the world is shattered right now um, and um, but I'm incredibly grateful at the moment because we've got a garden and I just keep thinking about people who maybe don't have gardens and stuff like that and think how on earth are they coping with kids and stuff and or animals or anything and uh, yeah how are you Andrew? <laughs> uh, I'm all right compared to you two. <laughs> I've only nice. got two kids I've only got two kids I haven't got a team of people um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, joking aside, though, I think I am in a look, it's, it's tough. It's still seven year old and five year old and all of that stuff that comes with that work is obviously for reasons we'll talk about busy, um, yeah. but less urgently, let's be honest, than all the stuff that you deal with, Mike. Um, I, I think my main challenge is, is, is actually yeah, probably upwards to parents who, who you, you start off doing the call, call any time. And my parents were about 70 touch with fairly healthy. Um, but suddenly, you, you know, you have to remind them that when they start calling you at three every day, um, you, you, you're doing other stuff. Um, and, you know, the 45 minute call with dad, that's a lovely chat to have, but you can't do me. Right. Yeah, that's, that's in my that's in my half day working time, dad. Um, but yes, it's, it's, we're all getting used to different situations. And I think we've all now said something that means that we can't share this podcast with our friends and family. So so we're all level now so, so we can crack on. I was going to say as well, I don't know if you two are having this issue either, but I and many other people, especially in our area, it is impossible to make your parents stay at home. It's like my dad has Parkinson's disease. He had an emergency stoma fitted in December. He's meant to have deep brain uh, surgery. And he and my mum were just like, well, well, we'll just go for a walk. We won't see anybody. He'll be fine. And I'm like, I'll bring you stuff. Just stay home. Just don't do anything. And they're just like, mm, we'll be okay. And I'm like, seriously, just stay at home. And they're saying to me, but we need to protect you. And I'm like, no, no, that's not how this virus works this time. I actually really need to protect you right now. And I think everybody's probably finding that with their parents at the moment. They're just very, very disobedient. <laughs> I don't think I've ever sp spoken to my mum so much. Um, I'm doing the 
how are you, um, Salvation Army, Samaritans kind of call every other day that I think is probably freaking them out more than reassuring. <laughs> um, and then I said, how are you doing, you know, bunkered down in, 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 in the house? Um, and one, they are desperately sad because their 10-month-old twins are growing up yeah. and they're not seeing them. And my dad's 80 in July and mum's 79 you know, and they, they do realise the seriousness of what's going on. Um, and then I said, oh, how are you coping, you know, not going out? To, oh, well, we've been out once because we need to get exercise. And uh, Edith down the road, she's 93. And so we've gone to get her some food. So, so in some ways, I, I you see it on the news about the community spirit and yeah. the building back community and I'm hearing it and 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 that is really lovely but I I do worry about in our business the the, the level of isolation and getting the balance right and you know what the state of the nation will be in October November um and I was talking to a business contact last week and he said they left the office so quickly that he wasn't able to take home any of his office chair or proper equipment. And he's found himself in a kind of shoe cupboard working eight hours a day at home, yeah. uh, crouching over um, with his neck turned to one side and his back turned to one side doing all these Zoom calls. Um, and you can see that just an explosion of mental health and physical health issues in the autumn um, as, as, as people have been cocooned uh, for so long. And, and it's really difficult to say anything else because in many ways the message is stay at home unless it's absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, and we've given a letter to all our staff because of the fear now of being pulled over by the police on the way to work, you know, about it being essential. And, and, but I've been very clear in the letter that if any of our staff are, are, are caught, you know, work, we do not work weekends, or, well, we work from home at weekends, um, and we're not doing any visits. And so the letter is very explicit about, you know, travelling in the morning and in the evening. Yeah. So there is a real need to reinforce the, 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 the social um, distancing. And, uh, but I do fear for the, the population and the, the growing numbers of people with mental and physical uh, disabilities that, that, that may emerge as we emerge through this. Absolutely. So shall we... Um getting i guess to the what this podcast would have been about when we agreed to do it six weeks ago um, and, and probably if we go for a chunk um of of that now um and i'm sure i think towards the end maybe if we come back to some of the reflections on on uh coronavirus maybe from a more technical perspective um uh, and you've already picked up some of those really important ones there mike that i think that's i think that highlights why we wanted to speak to you um because we come at a lot of the same issues from a very different perspective, but then there ends up being these, you know, very shared points of relevance and, and, and interest. So uh, maybe Mike, if you want to um, just 
just for a couple of minutes, just go back through in a bit of detail what it is that you and the organisation there do, and, and I guess how you, maybe focusing more on you personally, how, how you've got to this point um, in there. No, absolutely. And um, so I'm chief exec of Purple, um, and I describe Purple as an organisation that sees disability differently. And as I visualise, what I want to do is, is, is take disability from being perceived, seen as a, a welfare, vulnerable people issue, um, a, a, an issue that is addressed primarily by the state, and, and, and turn disability into a valuable a value proposition, um, seeing disabled people as talented uh, individuals and, and a talent pool for being employees, um, but also being seen as disabled uh, customers in their own right um, and wanting and driving a quality customer experience. Um, and, 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 and that, that shifting of the dial, that shifting of where disability is positioned um, involves society taking disability and seeing it in a very different way and behaving in a different way and approaching it in a different way. Uh, and we believe that if we can do that, then we fundamentally address or start to address inequality for disabled people in our society which is why I get out of bed in the morning and if you, if if we wind back six weeks two months I would have said look 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 at the look at the metrics look at the metrics on employment look at the metrics on education look at the metrics on poverty look at the metrics on access to leisure um, Disabled people are disproportionately uh, disadvantaged in all of those metrics. Um, and quite frankly, you've had Disability Discrimination Act, you've had the Equality Act. That really has not shifted the dial as much as it should have. And therefore, we have to fundamentally rethink how we kind of resh reshape that kaleidoscope. and. We've used the purple pound, the consumer spending power of disabled people and their families that stands at £249 billion a year and rising at 14%. And that is a huge, huge number. And I've defied, I've been into corporates, I've been into SMEs and said, if you have a member of staff that comes into your boardroom or into your meeting and goes, look, I found the new market. It's potentially worth 240 billion pounds a year. The great thing is only 10% of businesses have even thought about it. And what's even more brilliant is the way to access that market is a change of mindset. So it's not really gonna cost us anything. Um, and we have started to see that really starting to move. Um, and I've always said the, the International Sign for Disability, which is the wheelchair sign, has done 
brilliant across the world. It's really raised the profile. But the wheelchair users, that they, they reflect 7% of the disabled population. And 80% of disabled people will walk into a shop, walk into a restaurant, walk into a hotel, walk into an office, and you won't know that they have additional needs. Um, and it's about a mindset, it's about asking the right type of questions, it's about a customer experience. And, and, and partly this is why I'm excited of being on this podcast today because um, I, I've talked to Catherine before. Um, I can see the huge opportunity that the insurance industry can play in delivering these objectives, delivering the repositioning of disability through employing talented individuals and providing a good quality customer experience. And I can see it happening. And then of course, what has happened has just happened. And, and, and my fear is that we will go back a long way when we start to emerge and perhaps we'll pick that up um, later. But that's who Purple are, that's who we do, and we're working with some really progressive organisations who see the, the business case for disability. And we talk, Andrew, about blending kindness and commerciality. And I think in 2020, if you're going to get organisations to buy into this, and buy into this because they want to do the right thing by their business and they want to do the right thing by their staff and they want to do the right thing by their customers, then you have to find that mix of commercial and social objectives um, to, and give them the tools to be able to apply the common sense, apply the approach and to do it properly. I think that's absolutely brilliant and I was going to say something that sort of resonated when you were talking then as well about the people um, with disabilities and their employability and not to sort of like focus primarily on coronavirus or anything but I'm seeing a lot of things as well on social media um, and a lot of things from people who are disabled on social media saying so hang on a minute for all these years you've not been able to adapt work so that I can work from home and so that I can do this and keep doing things and now you know we're seeing it now where Everybody is suddenly having to adapt and work from home. We are opening up the doors. We're doing Zoom meetings. And I have to say, you know, we did, um, I was at a conference not long ago where somebody was there by video rather than in person. And it did, it was different. You know, if someone's there in person, it can make a huge difference and a huge impact to the atmosphere. But for meetings and stuff like that, for everyday running, running of a business, then really, you know, we've, we're seeing that all these companies have these huge, huge businesses in central London or in the cities and they're paying extortionate rates for these buildings and really all they need to do is a bit of an adaptation a lot of the workforce come out from home or we're possibly opening up avenues for people with disabilities who can't get into the office so you're kind of thinking well as, as some big corporate's going to turn and go well hang on a minute we're paying how many hundreds of thousands of pounds at least a year or possibly even a month in London I don't know I'm a simple northern person I don't know the pricing you know on these offices when what we could do is not have that open, we could have a cheaper office elsewhere. And then a lot of that money could then be distributed to a broader workforce who, you know, at the moment, they were massively untapped potential. Well, I've, I've, I've seen, and um, 
I've seen a lot of people in the disability community uh, and we use in employment terms um, reasonable adjustments and, and, and the battles that employees have had with their employers to make reasonable adjustments for that individual to be hugely product, uh, um, have a level of productivity in that organization. And that includes often buying a piece of IT software at 300 pounds to enable that to happen. And, and the battles about whether that is reasonable or not. And suddenly, overnight, UK PLC has absolutely created the biggest reasonable adjustment in working lives ever. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm going to capture all of this because when I stand on a platform again in October, November, I will be saying to businesses, do not ever, ever tell me again that you cannot make simple adjustments. And I hope if anything good comes out of this, we will start to reconceptualize and realize that actually what we're talking about, and by the way, let's just keep remembering this, what we are talking about um, is about tapping into talented individuals and tapping into consumers, which is the benefit of the companies themselves and their relationship with disabled people. So yeah, absolutely, reasonable adjustments, uh, given what's gone on now, is really, really straightforward. That's great, and, and I, guess, I guess then, Mike, moving into your experiences with financial services or insurance specifically, um, either for you as an individual or the things that your organisation sees. I know, I know you've worked with the likes of Johnny Timpson and Catherine at Cura, um, but I mean, obviously, overall, there's a lot of challenges in our world, and it'd be good to hear, I guess, from your side, some of those that you've seen, um, or, or to, to get your impression of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And, uh, if I start with uh, um, my own experience, um, as I started my working life quite a number of years ago, but it was striking that um, I'd done an economics degree, um, and uh, no disrespect to economists, but we're, we're a quite boring lot, you know, and um, <laughs> uh, very risk averse, uh, and I say, and I, I was one of them. Um, and at 21, 22, I, I, I decided that, you know, I was going to invest in all sorts of things for a rainy day that, of course, never, never was going to happen. Um, and I wanted critical illness cover, um, uh, which 21-year-old, 22-year-old in those days didn't really apply for. And uh, we went through all the forms. And then suddenly there was this kind of offhand, um, oh, and by the way, do you have a disability? Uh, yes, I do. And, and, and suddenly the whole conversation just ground to a halt. Um, you've got to take this back, uh, however long it was. Um, but it ground to a halt. Oh, well, that might be a problem. Well, why will that be a problem? Well, we, because, you know, we're going to have to ask you all sorts of other questions. Um, and to cut a long story short, I got my critical illness uh, cover at a huge premium and they were explicit and saying 
because you are disabled. And I said, but why because I'm disabled? Oh, you don't know, you know, it's a technical reason, but because you're disabled. And by the way, if you were to end up with a critical illness that had paralysis involved, for example, you wouldn't be covered. Um, and we went through the whole loop of, but the, my disability has nothing to do with paralysis whatsoever. Well, that is what we've been told. And if you want critical illness cover, you have to accept the terms, um, which I did. Um, and, I, and I did on the basis that it was highly unlikely that due to my disability, I had any greater chance than Catherine or yourself, Andrew, of, of, of getting paralysis. Um, but I know from my peers, who I then persuaded to get critical illness as well, who were non-disabled, uh, but their premiums were a fraction of what mine were. Um, and I guess that was my introduction. And throughout, uh, when you buy a house and your life insurance and all of those things, the issue has continued to come up. Um, and I can only say to you, uh, and it's not totally scientific, um, but if you look at my insurance cover in relation to peers of a similar ilk, I am paying more. Um, and if you strip out all the variables uh, that it could be, I suspect disability still remains one of those where there is an indirect premium that I am paying. Um, and uh, I think that is, that the, the disability still in many areas is a hot potato, you know, is, is something that the scripts, if the word comes up or words, that are synonyms to that the word comes up you know you're, you're into um, a whole set of other questions and I, I, I've spoke with Catherine and Alan a lot um, and the nature of the business you do have to get personal um, and I totally understand that um, it is totally reasonable to understand that but it's how you interpret and how you translate what you hear and how you then determine whether that means that you are a higher risk or not. And I, and I think my plea to the insurance company as a, as a, as a chief exec of Purple and someone who uh, wants disabled people to be an integral part of the community, whether it's as a, as a customer or employee, is don't disadvantage, don't disadvantage us just because of a word that means that historically you've been able to just put a premium on because it's an unknown risk. So, is that generally what you see or what you hear from people? Is that is that same? still the same experience that people are getting now when they're going for insurances that we're still seeing a people feeling like there's a lot of barriers and inequality when they go for the cover not if they come to you Catherine, but um <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> generally yes and, and 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 generally there's still this fear factor of 
having to disclose to people who they've never met before some really quite personal details and knowing that at the end of that process there is a sense that you're going to get penalized in your premiums for that and i and i think i think that is out there um and i think it's easy to disabuse and this is why i think the insurance companies can be at the forefront of that shift in vision that I think we need to see and which purple is about. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. I mean, I think, and obviously Catherine and I live and breathe this, I guess, every day. And I, I, I don't think there's any pretense that where we are now is, or where the insurance industry now is anywhere near perfect. Um, I guess to your example there, Mike, I still think that would happen today. Um, and the two crunch points are the, I guess, how fair the decision is and how well it's explained. Um, I, get that's, I guess as a technician, the bits that I hear, and, and there's both of those are equally in need of focus and, and you know, that, that kind of challenge of, I think sometimes, I think most, I guess my view would be most of the time the decision that's made now is fair is reasonable that's that's the you know we've mentioned acts today is reasonable um but you know to have that to convince people of that and to have a conversation as to whether that's true or not you need to be able to explain well why how have you come up with that decision and not just kind of pass it down the line as a well it's probably something like this to fill in the gaps but and I'll tell you what, Andrew, if, if you are correct, and it would be brilliant if you are, then the challenge before the insurance industry is one of persuasion, one of communication, and one of inclusion, which quite frankly is much easier to achieve than the technical uh, challenges that may have you know, been yeah. out of date five, ten years ago. So something that we're seeing um, a bit at the moment as well, because uh, obviously we are talking about barriers to insurance and what people can expect and things. So we are seeing, again, I'm not wanting to, I seem to be just talking about coronavirus every time I start speaking up. So I do apologise, but it is a little bit about coronavirus again. So we have seen within the insurance world that for anybody for income protection with some insurers, uh, some of their policies have been, in a sense, um, withdrawn for new applications. Um, some of them now have exclusions on in regards to the income protection. So how, if it kicks in sort of like at certain time periods, there's some coronavirus exclusions on there now because the income protection suddenly got swarmed with people being interested in it because everyone is scared, obviously, about losing income. And in many ways, it's absolutely brilliant that so many people want income protection now, but it's just really unfortunate that there's just been this huge, huge swarm of people. And um, just for anybody who sort of like, I think we brushed on this a little bit last time Andrew is you know the difficulties with some insurers if they suddenly have everybody take up the policy now and then once coronavirus in a sense dies down they've all made a claim but then they close their policy down in say October then the insurer is going to be left with not enough financial reserves to be able to carry on supporting everybody and anybody who maybe has a longer term claim it's, it's lots of it may sound quite bad that in a sense of what it is kind of it's coming down to a business sense but Ultimately, they are businesses and they need to be profitable to be able to support everybody and fulfill the promises that they've made to existing people already. 
but we are seeing a change in regards to um, some of the other protection policies, so the life and critical illness cover. And I think this is probably something, because we've touched on it a little bit before the, the call, and something you just touched on a little bit earlier, Mike, in that um, there are a couple of insurers, and that's not the majority, it's just a couple of insurers that have essentially um, closed their doors to anybody who's applying for the um, life insurance, critical illness cover, or the income protection, if it doesn't go through straight through on their online systems. Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who will be in the boat where they can go straight through on their systems. I obviously tend to see most people who can't go through um, on online journeys. And I'm sure that a lot of people that you'll be aware of, Mike, would be in the same situation. And it's really, really unfortunate because you say it's kind of, for, for that couple of companies, it is a big step back. Um, others are looking to adapt and to make changes um, where they can. Um, I think it comes down to kind of that ethos, that kind of like we were saying, kind of like that company ethos as to what you want to do ultimately for your customers. Um, and Andrew, I think you may probably have some suggestions as to what I know some insurers are potentially doing or looking at doing to see if they continue to support people as an advisor. Um, what I always do um, with clients is I say to them, right, we're, you know, if we're going to be going down uh, the need for uh, medical reports from GPs and stuff like that, I'll always say to them as well, do you have any medical reports at home? Do you have the facility to scan them? Any specialist letters? If you do, send them to me in my secure systems and we can potentially bypass the need to go to the GP. And I think insur some insurers are now actively putting that kind of message out there to a lot of people to just say, if you've got medical stuff, get it to us. We'll see what we can do. We're trying still as much as possible to get you undercover. But um, Andrew, have you seen any changes that you think are going to be working well or not so well? Yeah, yeah. it probably is worth just giving context of numbers, as Mike did incredibly well with, I guess, the, what the prize is and what the challenge is on, on that side. So, you know, for individual protection, so for life critical illness income protection, there's about 2 million new policies written a year in the UK. And depending on the insurer, uh, between 10 and 20%, you would be getting general GPRs, reports from your doctor, and probably another 5 or 10%, you'd be getting medical evidence from someone else. So you do the numbers and you quite quickly get to, let's say, three or 400,000 people a year who, are, who insurers are asking for extra medical evidence on. I guess, you know, in Mike's situation, it probably comes on that last question, where suddenly there's the, oh, well, actually, we can't just complete this on an easy application form or system. So it's big, I guess, the reason for that preamble is it's, it's big numbers. We're not talking about one or two people here or there. We're talking about lots of people who, you know, for their family, for their house move, whatever, may be, may be um, in a very different situation going forward. Um, <clears throat> you're right, Catherine, there's, there's lots of different ways that people could go about things in this spirit of, adapting through this time so we're so i guess the ideas out there that are being discussed are using tele-interviews rather than traditional medical exams uh using video interviews rather than nurse screenings can you just explain a tele-interview please Andrew? yeah so a tele-interview is um a nurse typically or sometimes an, an underwriter going through a set of questions i guess bluntly in more detail um, than the typical advisor or salesperson uh, would. So typically those calls would take about an hour. They'd go into detail where detail needed to be gone into. So there'd be a script, but 
but generally that person would have permission to go off script as well. And in essence, it's getting, it's trying to get as close to all the information and especially all the information the individual knows about their own condition, which I think, without putting words into your mouth, I think often, we've discussed this on a previous podcast, Catherine, on rare diseases, often that individual will know at least as much or more than what's in their GP what's in their GP reports. So if we're looking at potential positives, that kind of mind shift to going, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we actually trust the person that much more could come to the fore now? Um, And then I guess related to that, and it could be used in overlap, is the idea that you that you just trust what's come in and but then with this condition that says we will get medical evidence or we have the right to get medical evidence in, let's say 12 months time. And if something transpires there where what you've told us isn't true, um, and I say isn't true rather than you didn't know, which, you know, and it's those grey areas which frankly will put some insurers off, um, then we we change the premiums accordingly or in those extreme circumstances where you've, you know, just out and out lied to us, then pretty obviously you don't have the cover. So I think there's ways forward um, that don't involve, and, and sorry, probably, Last but not least, Catherine, there is this using evidence more even beyond the tele-interview, encouraging the individual to send hospital letters in. Because the reasons that insurers are are saying for turning this away is, is primarily focused on this altruistic, we're trying not to swamp the NHS with requests at this time. Now, I think it would be fair to say insurers are also, as every, as we've all discussed for ourselves, everyone is busy at the moment. So I think, yes, it may help GP surgeries not have to complete 300,000 reports, but it will also help insurers not have, from an operational perspective, not have to look at them. And I think almost flushing out the real reason by sending in, if you have copies of your own reports, your own letter about the type of cancer you had, the heart attack you had, the the mental health issue you had sending in your last reports from your consultant etc um I, I think it would be very worrying if insurers were starting to say we can't even accept those yeah um so yeah a few different ideas yeah i was gonna say interesting as well that i have heard it um from colleagues as well that um sometimes gp reports are coming back super duper fast right now because obviously the surgeries are closed so it, you know, there's it's kind of like a mix, isn't it? I think some GPs are going to be immensely busy, and I think there's going to be there's going to see waves of that as coronavirus obviously goes to different areas. But yeah, there's there's somewhere things are going extremely fast actually with the GP reports. So it's um it's very interesting dynamic. But I think um a good thing to point out as well, from different things we were saying, Mike, is that I think there needs to be that level of um sort of like true expectations and realistic expectations from all involved you know in the sense of I think you know sometimes you know if somebody has had say something like cancer recently and they're wanting the insurance then when they come to speak to the advisor or an insurer then it, it is possibly well it's probably likely that for many insurance policies there will be an increase possibly to the premiums not all policies will but some will um, but it could be that the policies that don't do that maybe have certain exclusions on them or different things so I think it's that kind of thing of that 
I think sometimes we all get, and I think everybody in all stages of it, so the person who's purchasing it, the advisor and the insurance, we can all get lost in our own kind of mindset of what is fair and what's right and what we should get. So in insurance or something, well, it's only fair and right that we put on these ratings and we do this and we do that. And sometimes it just needs someone to come in and say, well, hang on a minute, just look at it from you know so like a not business point of view for a second think of this you know see the person here don't see the number of this person and then again I think from sort of like the from the client point of view it's sometimes coming in and knowing you know because sometimes I've had people say to me you know um that they want to sue the insurer under the Disability Discrimination Act and they get really angry and um, and I can understand their frustration and everything and it's it is extremely frustrating sometimes but I think we have to sometimes we are changing things we're making things for the better but sometimes there are times where some people will pay more than others and even though that may not seem fair that is it, it is just sometimes the way that the insurance world in itself works i hope that makes sense no absolutely and and, and just to be absolutely crystal clear um there are certain conditions related to disability which would absolutely mean there is greater risk and therefore greater premium and, and the ratings and stuff and, and i would never say anything different what, what i am saying is um that we just need and you need as an industry to be clear with the evidence and the lines of evidence that that is what it is and therefore apply it um rather than in the clunky world which i was talking about critical illness where it was not uh it was just there was a word and there was a premium so i'm, I'm absolutely with you i'm absolutely with the industry and 99 percent of disabled people are absolutely with you about the role that you do the risk that has to be applied and for some people with certain conditions there is a higher risk and therefore a greater premium i think just going back to the point it was really fascinating the point that andrew made and you know uh, they keep talking about the new normal and what is the new normal um and i think you know we talked about reasonable adjustments i i think it is reasonable to to ask individuals who best know their condition by the way uh questions about their condition um and there's three answers isn't there there's either yes this is what it is this is how it impacts me and here is honestly what i think and therefore decisions can be made um there is i'm really sorry i i don't know enough about it so please um you know i'm being fair and i'm being honest and i'm not going to tell you things that will get me into difficulties and i'm not going to tell you things that mean that you take it as gospel and then when i come to have a claim in eight months time nine months time you rightly say you're not covered because um and then there's the question of the ability and the reasonableness to seek uh, medical cover or further information for which some will have it at home and like you said can complement the discussions and for some there will have to be writing out to medical practitioners 
and it may or may not be reasonable as we go through the next week weeks how quickly they can turn that around um but i think that the world that andrew is describing seems to be to me a very reasonable progressive way of dealing with an issue um in the times that we are and i would hope again that one of the things we might learn is if when we come through this that some of those approaches some of them common sense some of those redressing the balance between the industry and the individual may remain and and we don't just default back to pre-covid 19 world um because i think we will find that there are some changes that go on in relation to what is deemed reasonable the the relationship between the individual and the state and the individual and the employer um that will have some real benefits going forward that we just need to harness we need to nurture and we need to work out how we can then extrapolate those and scale them up for the benefit of society organizations and individual disabled people absolutely you're absolutely right mike thank you mike um i'm aware i'm aware we would normally say is there anything else you have to say it's been such a we've covered such a range of things um i i i want to still give you that offer um <laughs> but do you have is, a call to action, mate? Yeah, is may, maybe so. So I guess as a reminder, the people who we hope and believe are listening to this tend to be what, actuaries and underwriters who make economists look interesting. I would, I would say. So, so you know, feel the need to apologise for that. Um, advisors and other people who have some interest in in protection insurance. So, so you you have their ears for. For, for five more minutes uh, so, so is and anything else that you want to fill them with before before they go well, I, th- I think I, I think in the, the before before we started recording and one of the one of the issues that's focused my mind is that purple is a small organization that the reality is that its its drive, its direction, and its ability to succeed is still dependent, contingent on one or two individuals. Um, and I I'm on the board of an organisation, a, a social care organisation, where last year very suddenly the finance director died of a heart attack. Um, and one of the, the, the critical issues of that business was the fact that they had key man insurance in place. Um, and when you take out all the emotion and all the upset and stuff, from a business continuity perspective, it was fundamental. And I've been thinking about that ever since. Um, and thinking about purple and thinking about my own mortality and thinking, well, if anything happened to me, I don't want it to be the end of purple. I don't want the story to end because disabled people still need the inequalities in society. And I think we've got the right vehicle. So my call to action is 
I'm going to think about key man insurance and it will be quite interesting both of you to go through that process um, and see what approach is taken uh, see whether I think it's a fair approach and see whether there is a level of regional adjustment um, because I think it's vital uh, well it's vital to purple um, in, in that respect as well as other people and I think if I've got a broader point to make uh, this week is Autistic Awareness Week um, and uh, my blog comes out uh, tomorrow and I would be delighted if people um, would read it um, and it's about new normal critical and it's about putting yourself in the shoes of autistic people at this moment in time where actually having no new normal, having routines blown to smithereens uh, for, for, for people with autism and on the, on the spectrum who have been working and for whom the adjustments that have been made for individuals, um, thinking about those who, have, who are on the, on the spectrum and for whom such a sharp, rapid change has had a detrimental impact on their lives in terms of their routine and in terms of how they operate. Um, and getting employers just to think about their own staff and those on the spectrum and, 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 and a duty of care to those individuals and an understanding of those individuals. And then of course the other part of Purple is about the disabled customer. Um, and just making sure that at a time when services have rightly been minimised and you know, you're, you're delivering core, um, and I'm thinking here supermarkets, for example, to, to, to continue to think about the 22% of people in this country who have rights under some form of disability legislation and making sure that your organization provides the best customer experience that it can do in these circumstances. And it was interesting, uh, the boring economist in me was looking at the city and looking at share prices. Um, and it was interesting, if you look at it really, really narrowly, um, some of those companies where there was a bounce in their share price were ones that had talked openly and explicitly about their commitment to, now they call disabled people and vulnerable people. Um, but actually in this context, disabled people are vulnerable people. Quite frankly, there's a lot more people who have suddenly become vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but uh, just making sure that even in the teeth of what we're going through, delivering good customer service and a good customer experience to all our customers and not forgetting and just sweeping away all those things that in the good times we started to do that made a real difference. And I, I, I think it's really important. And Purple, we're a small organisation. You know, we, we, we're trying to do our bit by making sure that carers who are going into homes are paid and paid on time. But we've repurposed Purple Tuesday, which is the call of 
call to action for businesses around customer experience. And we're giving uh, companies the opportunity to, to take our brand and our logo under license for the next few weeks and, and dual purpose their customer experience messaging because we just got to make sure that all the progress that we have made over the last two or three years is not just simply swept away and these, these, the, the integration that we have started to see. And I truly, truly believe that disability, diversity and inclusion has to be an integral part of the recovery plan for the UK whenever it starts. And my message is that the insurance industry, by putting forward sensible approaches, showing the world what reasonable adjustments at scale can mean in practice, um, can be at the forefront of, 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 of this new world and this new normal. Fantastic, thank you. And where can people, obviously looking out for the um, blog on autism, where, where can people find that blog? What, what are your contact details if people want to get involved? Yeah, so you can either find it through www.purpletuesday.org.uk or you can find it on wearepurple.org.uk or on my LinkedIn page. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for um, everybody listening. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. It's been really insightful. We really hope that you found this useful, everybody that's listening. And if you do have any questions that you want us to discuss, please do send us a message. Yeah, and just to echo Catherine's thoughts there, Mike, thank you so much. It's from a very selfish perspective, it's been the perfect tonic for me in the middle of all of this madness, just to, um, yeah, uh, reiterate those those challenges and opportunities. So thank you so, so much. Um, Catherine and I will be back in two weeks without a special guest, um, but with some hopefully equally uh, interesting and more in-depth stuff. Uh, we're looking at multiple sclerosis specifically in two weeks' time. And I dare say there'll be the usual um, other subject being discussed as well. Uh, so if you want to stay in touch, then please do drop us a message on social media or go to our website on www.practical-protection.co.uk. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye.